You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to Christian Feminist Podcast, episode 129 on Harriet Tubman. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today are Ilya Dana Grubbs and Victoria Farmer. Uh, welcome. Hey. Hello. We're going to talk about Harriet Tubman a lot today, but um, before we get into that, I just want to give everybody a chance to introduce themselves. Uh, why don't you go first, Victoria? Hey, everybody. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am one of the co-founders of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I have a PhD in literature and gender studies from Florida State University. I currently live in Atlanta, Georgia with my husband and our cat. And for money, I work as a digital community manager for an Atlanta startup. Thanks. Aaliyah, how about you? My name is Ilya Danner Grubbs. I live in Birmingham, Alabama with my husband and our two young children. Um, I am an elementary teacher by trade, but now I am home, homeschooling my children um, and uh, work in ministry and um, do CFP on the side. Thanks. I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in Sugarland, Texas, uh, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University, teaching online this year, completely online. And I also teach uh, women's Bible study at our church, which is always great fun. And that actually is a really good transition to um, why I wanted to talk about this topic um, for this week. We originally had had something else on the docket for this month uh, that we had to push back because it was going to be a discussion of a film that now has a delayed release. Um, and in thinking about what to talk about instead, I went back to Harriet Tubman in part because uh, I taught a Legacies of Faith class about women in church history last uh, spring at our church. And one of the classes we did was Harriet Tubman. And it was amazing to learn um to go below the kind of, you know, one or two sentence surface knowledge that it seems like every kind of uh, American school child gets in school about Harriet Tubman and learn a lot more about her history and uh, researching all that to teach it to ladies at church really, really made me fascinated. And it's uh, a perfect fit for the Christian Feminist Podcast for a lot of reasons, uh, not least of which is that uh, Harriet Tubman, we might call one of the original Christian feminists because she was part of the original suffragist movement with Susan B. Anthony and uh, other women of the time. And we're going to briefly mention that at the end of the episode. Other reasons that this is a particularly fitting topic for right now, um, obviously right now uh, our nation is in a time of huge racial reckoning. And so it's a really important time, especially important time, even though it always matters, to uh, to talk back over and to, to um, re-examine and uh, kind of lift up uh, black voices of our nation's past. And, um, and that's been happening a lot lately. Harriet has been the subject of a lot of kind of press, I guess you would say. I don't know what the right word is. Um, there was the very well-regarded 2019 film 
uh, about Harriet Tubman starring Cynthia Erivo. Uh, for several years now, there's been a campaign to get her on the front of the $20 bill, um, a campaign that had a pretty pretty good amount of steam. Um, and she just has a, a huge legacy. Um, I, I thought that was interesting. I saw there was one survey that named her the third most famous uh, civilian civilian before the Civil War in U.S. history. Um, the only other in that survey, I think they were asking people which uh, – historical figures they knew about. And the only people who were better known or had Mormon name recognition than Harriet Tubman were Paul Revere and Betsy Russ. Um, and that was really interesting to me. Uh, there's a national monument. Um, there's the uh, Harriet Tubman National Railroad or Underground Railroad National Historical Park. There's been uh, an opera about her stage plays, um, the SS Harriet Tubman, the first Liberty ship named after a black woman and an asteroid, by the way, also an asteroid named after Harriet Tubman. So she has huge footprints all over our history and is someone that we would all do well to know more about. And so we're going to focus uh, closely on her today um, and looking specifically at the time in her life that is covered by the first biography written about her. Um, and that uh, we I, I, I chose this uh, biography and not a more recent biography of which there are several in part because um, Sarah Hopkins Bradford, who wrote the book, actually interviewed Harriet when she was writing it. They were contemporaries, and she, in researching it, talked with Harriet Tubman and other people who knew her. And that makes it, to me, maybe the most interesting of the biographies, not necessarily the most accurate, in part because there are things that, you know, um, weren't or couldn't be corroborated at the time. Um, there's much more depth of research in recent biographies, but this one's particularly interesting because of that personal um, contact between the writer and the subject, Harriet Tubman. Um, and just to give listeners a little bit about the book before we move on to talk about it, um, Sarah Hopkins Bradford, uh, who lived from 1818 to 1912, she was a writer and a historian, um, and today is obviously best known for her two biographies of Harriet Tubman. She wrote two, though the first one is, is uh, maybe better known. And uh, most of her other work was actually in children's literature which I kind of find interesting. Um, though she did also write some other biographies of other historical figures. She wrote a biography of Peter the Great and one about Columbus. Both of those were before the Harriet Tubman biography. Um, she did extensive interviews with Harriet when she was writing the book. And, um, and that the first book was called, the one we're talking about today is Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman. And that was from 1869. So several years uh, post-Civil War and covers the period from her birth um, through slavery, her escape, Underground Railroad, uh, her Civil War work. All of that is encompassed in the first biography. And then almost 20 years later, in 1886, she published another book, Harriet Tubman, Moses of Her People. Both of these books were designed to uh, raise funds to support Harriet and her uh, family, her parents. Um, specifically, the first one w uh, was also to help support her parents, who she had liberated. And both books went through many, many editions. They still sell well today. Um, they got Bradford, at least, worldwide fame, but also spread the stories of Harriet uh, all across the world. And um, the uh, the book is interestingly structured in that it is it is a narrative of scenes, as you see in the title, Scenes of the Life of Harriet Tubman. And, but it also includes other things, um, namely lots of letters. Um, the beginning, uh, at the beginning of the book, there are commendatory letters from various people um, testifying to Harriet's um, personal integrity and the importance of her work, and that her story is true. 
Um, one of those letters is famously is from uh, Frederick Douglass. And then there are more letters at the end um, kind of corroborating the information in the book. And, um, and we'll all kind of mention those throughout. Um, so that's, that's kind of the background. Um, that's, that's the knowing part. Um, for the reading part today, it's also going to feel like knowing listeners because it's a biography. Um, even our discussion about the reading is going to be knowing because we're just going to kind of walk you through a little bit um, of some of the key parts and kind of the three of us together are going to try to make a little um, mosaic of moments from this, this text to give you some idea of what was happening in Harriet Tubman's life and why she's such a momentous figure. So um, let's go ahead and, and jump into that. And um, we're going to begin with her childhood and Victoria is going to take us there. So why don't you start Victoria? Sure. Um, it's important to note that while this biography is kind of loosely um, chronologically organized, because it's so akin to the subgenre of the slave narrative, there are pieces missing. Um, because, of course, one of the ways that slaves were dehumanized was that they couldn't themselves read and write. So record keeping. Uh, was was difficult and that that's on purpose because they're not treated as, as full human beings so we don't have um, as many documentation as we do of free people uh, that's of course by design by this unequal system so all that is to say um, there's kind of a, a hole here where most of Harriet's childhood is um, the first place that the text starts is with uh, the first owner we know of, uh, a woman called Miss Susan, um, and this is a story that we know uh, Bradford gets accurately because we have other records of Harriet, Harriet referring to Miss Susan in, in speeches in later life. And Miss Susan is not um, a very kind woman. She whips Harriet quite a bit and uh, doesn't really explain to her the kind of work she's supposed to be doing. Uh, I'm going to read a, a short quote from kind of the central Miss Susan uh, anecdote. Harriet, then a young girl, was taken from her life in the field and having never seen the inside of a house better than a cabin in the Negro quarters, was put to housework without being told how to do anything. The first thing was to put a parlor in order. Move these chairs and tables into the middle of the room, sweep the carpet clean, then dust everything and put them back in their places. These were the directions given, and Harriet was left alone to do her work. So what happens is... Uh, a, a kind of Amelia Bedelia situation, but much darker. Uh, she does the instructions she's given in the order that she's given them, uh, because that's the only thing she knows how to do. Uh, she doesn't know to let the dust settle after she sweeps, and uh, the furniture is all dusty, and Miss Susan gets very upset and beats Harriet badly. Uh, it's only when Miss Susan's kindly sister steps in and explains the process in a clear way. Um, again, Harriet is very young at this time and is doing something she doesn't know how to do uh, that she actually learns. Imagine that, learning something when someone takes the time to actually explain it to you in a way that is appropriate to your age so you can understand it. Um, what I think is really interesting about the way 
Bradford tells this is that she goes sort of straight from this anecdote to Harriet's next owner without um, discussing the thing I had always heard Harriet mention in other speeches, which is the event that makes her go from Miss Susan to the next owner is the fact that she uh, steals a lump of sugar from Miss Susan and is then chased out of the house. So we get this interesting moral juxtaposition between Miss Susan being angry and her sister being a more benevolent kind of white person, but we don't get um, Harriet actually breaking the rules. Uh, So I I thought that was interesting in terms of what Bradford is trying to do there. That's a great point. Um, and, And it makes, I guess, suppose it makes sense you know, if you think about it as a text that's designed to elicit not just sympathy, but also money, you know, people uh, buying the book, but also donating money. Yeah, You can absolutely. maybe understand why, why she wouldn't, but you're right. It, it makes it um, not the full tapestry, I guess, of, you know, of, of her experience. Um, do you want to, is there anything else that you want to say about her childhood there, Victoria? Or do you feel like that's probably the most kind of salient um, detail? I do think that's kind of the the biggest portion of the narrative that um, tells us about her childhood. But I I do hope we come back later to the juxtaposition of these two white women, because I I think that's uh, something we should kind of go back over. If we don't in our kind of like discussion of, of the chronological kind of story, we'll definitely come back to it when we have our discussion time. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so then the next kind of uh, step is that um, there was this moment in Harriet's kind of childhood era as she was getting into adulthood that changed everything, which was a a famous injury. And Ailea is going to talk us through uh, about that and some of its effects on her life. Yeah, um, when she was a young teen, she um, was actually working as a field hand, which is a little bit unusual for women, but... Um, earlier in the story, it talks about that she didn't really like the housework that she was introduced to weaving and things like that. Um, but she was very strong physically. Um, and so they had her working as a field hand and she ended up following um, another slave who apparently went to town and they kind of gloss over some of the details here, but apparently the owner followed the slave and so did Harriet and they tried to um, recapture the slave and said he needed to be whipped And when the slave ran away, she refused to stop him as she was ordered. And she stood in the doorway to prevent the the overseer from getting him. And when she did, um, the the overseer grabbed a two-pound weight off of the counter at the store they were in and threw it at the slave who was escaping. Um, But it missed and it hit Harriet. And uh, it was... In the text, it's she calls it a near fatal blow that it apparently was um, quite an injury, and uh, it took her a long time to recover from it. And the best that I can read between the lines, and you guys can give your opinions too, but it, it seems like from that point she suffered kind of absentee seizures of some kind. Um, she would just kind of stop talking in the middle of a conversation or whatever she was doing, and they said like go into a deep slumber, maybe a petite mall seizure even um and then she would get up wake up eventually and just go back to what she was doing and um this kind of stuck with her for the rest of her life they said um and uh she 
she never fully recovered from it. It was a permanent injury. Um, and that's interesting because it is often talked about in this text and I feel like in general, um, in relation to her kind of mysticism and her um, approach to God and to her faith, um, as far as you know, hearing the voice of God and um, saying that she was receiving visions and saying you know, she would go into kind of what they call raptures in the text. Um, and it even says in the text that uh, cynics might say that this is a hallucination or might say that she's crazy or whatever. But, but the point that several people through the letters and um, the authors point out is that they they weren't wrong though. <laughs> the, that the, the, the guidance that she, she was getting from God and the, the kind of raptures that she was seeing, that it was, it was logical. The things that she's saying, you know, she wasn't speaking uh, like somebody might who had brain damage and was incoherent. It was um, dreams that she would have. And then later she would recognize people from the dreams or she would recognize places from the dreams that she had never seen or never, never been to before. Um, she would be aware of danger before it happened. Um, and it would be true. Like she would be told by God to leave the path and, and leave the road and go somewhere else. Um, and they would find a cabin in the woods that would take them in for the night. And then later they would find out that the, the their pursuers had gone, had taken that road or had posted up on that road. Um, and she says that her father had the same gift. She says that her father could predict the weather and that he foretold the Mexican war. Um, so she believed that this was, you know, a, a gift from God and something that, that was, that ran in her family. Um, and uh, so I, th- I think it's really interesting because even at the time, you know, um, it's it's kind of spoken of in a way that uh, maybe you don't believe this, and that's fair, but look at the results, and several of the letters testify to, you know, this proving out, and um, she she would say, you know, it's the Lord, and I told, I, I told him, I trust you, I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect that you lead me, and he always did. So I think that's that's a really interesting um, approach, especially for us in our culture today. We tend to shy away from mysticism, but um, it definitely was a, a key part of her faith and her practice and her life. And whether or not it was related to her head injury or not, um, it, it definitely was something that can't just be dismissed as easily as, oh, well, it was just a seizure. You know, what do you guys think about that that part? I think it's interesting because I've always heard um, in in later biographies her condition is sort of medicalized in very presentist terms. Um, I've heard it. uh, I think it's interesting you saying grand mal seizures because that makes more sense to me than um, what I've typically heard it referred to, which is just episodic narcolepsy. Um, But it it seems from uh, what I've read that you know, the way she was able to kind of come in and out of it seems less like narcolepsy and more like seizures. But I I think part of that medicalization has to do with the fact that she herself referred to the condition in such spiritual and religious language, because I think people are, are kind of spooked by that. And, um, but I, I think it makes sense when you think about the way she refers to her um, freeing the 
freeing people and, and taking them north as a calling from God. She always frames it that way. Um, all of the escape attempts are connected to religious language. She talks about Exodus a lot. Um, she's referred to not just as Moses very famously, but as Daniel by the people who she helps escape. There's this whole coded kind of hymn singing thing that happens along the Underground Railroad. So this is obviously something that is the fabric of not just her life, but slave life in general. And I think to disconnect that from the way that they frame it is not entirely okay like I think we should respect that and um and and not just respect it like validate it especially as Christians yeah yeah completely agree yeah we had a really interesting discussion about it in class um at church because you know um I'm teaching in a kind of Protestant Baptist context which is very definitely cessationist, right? In terms of, you know, miracles or um, kind of visions. But um, but you're right. So many of these things, my favorite stories about her prophetic gift are when she would roll up to, um, you know, to visit a certain, I think it was one of the Quaker men, maybe Thomas Garrett, and say, you got some money for me, yes? And yes, would have, yes. And he would God have told me that you were going to give yeah. me money. <laughs> God told me you were going to give me money. And it wouldn't be his money. It would be money sent from somewhere else around the world for her. But it's true. It would be there, you know, I mean, the exact amount. Um, just things like that. Uh, and and when I think about the, I mean, it sounds so terrifying to me to think about her setting out on these journeys and being responsible for all these people, knowing that that could happen at any time, right? That she could have one of these episodes. But you're right. I mean, what she said, Leah, everything, I mean, you know, every time she talked about it, she, she believed that God would not let anything touch her until she had completed her task. Um, and that she would not be harmed that she, and she never did fail. I mean, none of her people were ever caught. Um, and And they make a point to say that her seizures or her, her episodes never put them in danger. Like, even though she had these, when she would be talking to you or whatever, when she was on a mission, she was on the mission and it didn't interfere Mm -hmm. with that. Yes, yes. And I and I think, Victoria, what you're saying, too, I, I think that that validation is so important because the thing is, it can be both and. It could be something that had a medical cause, but it could also be 100% true that mm-hmm. God was showing her things, that yeah. she was, you know. Um, and so, yeah, to, to, to make it wholly medicalized and as if that's that's all that it is, it, it's not a good enough explanation just kind of on a historical level because some of these things are corroborated that she did know you know, beforehand, what was going to happen or that, you know, she received these warnings and they didn't go a certain way, things like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I think that's one of the most interesting, um, things about her. And one of the things that I think, I mean, we, we, if you just think about the bare facts of her life, it's impressive, but when you think about all the things that she did while dealing with these debilitating, you know, um, seizures or whatever it was that we, you know, we're not sure now, but, um, that, that she didn't give in to fear, um, or to pain, you know, cause it also called lasting pain, chronic pain, um, from what I've read. So it's, it's really, really amazing. Um, if you get, do you guys have anything else about that before I talk about underground railroad? Uh, I will say that recently the disability community has, has started to claim Harriet Tubman in a rather significant way. Um, because, you know, there's, there's not a lot of, historical representation of um, 
black people with disabilities and especially the chronic pain community um, because the way she frames her um, this very you know racist injury this injury that happens to her um, because of a completely unequal system she uses it for good and claims it as spiritual power um, that that's something that has become rather important to the chronic pain and disability communities, which I think is pretty cool. That is really cool. I was going to add too, like the, the voice of this novel bothered me a little bit um, because it is a little bit condescending and maybe even paternalistic in the way that it talks about her. And I, I kept thinking, you know, it's not, look, isn't it amazing that she, you know, did all these things in spite of obstacles, um, that she overcame that, you know, these obstacles. Um, but like, it's more, it, it's just important to remember that the obstacles that she overcame were put there by people on purpose to oppress her. And I, yeah. you know, if, if this were written today, I feel like, um, it would be, that would be more emphasized. It reminded me when you were talking about, you know, the disability community, like they're the, the pushback. And, and I know you've taught me about this, about um, the pushback on kind of fetishizing the idea of, you know, being an overcomer and kind of like um, this inspiration, yeah. you know, the, the inspiration porn argument. Yes, yes, exactly. And I felt a little bad in this novel and it, it made me a little uncomfortable because I just, I wanted to emphasize, I wanted her to emphasize more that this is not just her overcoming obstacles. These are obstacles that people are intentionally oppressing her with you know well yeah um, but I mean it is it's written in the 19th century sure. by a white woman about a black woman so like yeah, we, for sure. for we sure. should it was just very noticeable yeah it is and like especially in the beginning of the narrative I'm mm -hmm. paraphrasing but she essentially says this would be super impressive if any person did it but because yeah. she is a dark-skinned black woman it's even more impressive yeah and there's exactly. and there's this yeah. sort of uh, you know, eugenics tinged kind of, or or at least like paper bag test tinged uh, kind of tone to as a, not just a woman, but a woman who is black and a woman who is very black kind of thing that's a little eh, from a 21st century perspective, but understandable exactly. from a 19th century perspective. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned it because um, I didn't want to I didn't want to front load all of that discussion at the very beginning and because if only because I didn't want it to just it be my voice <laughs> forever talking about all these things. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I wanted, I was hoping we would find some kind of easy or not easier, some organic ways to talk about the, there, there are problems with Bradford's text. Um, and it's one of these things where it's a trade off because you get in some ways the most contemporary information, but you're right. It's filtered through her perspective. And it makes it mm -hmm. difficult. Um, I also found it really interesting that in her short introductory letter at the beginning, Bradford to me almost seems to be throwing shade on like Harriet Beecher Stowe. So um, much Harriet Beecher Stowe yes. shade. Yes, yes, which is really interesting because in some ways, yes, this is so much better than reading something like Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is fiction and is made of syrup in a lot of ways and is just can be over the top and ridiculous. On the other hand, some of those same attitudes are here, like you're saying, Ilya. So it's not as if she's completely free of the perspective of, you know, of, of a white woman's 19th century perspective, as much as she might think that she's so much better than Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, it's, it's still there, you know, um, which I suppose is one reason that it's kind of nice that there are so many of these letters 
because it's not as if Bradford's voice is the only reason you're the only voice you're getting. And for that reason, I do appreciate the letters. Um, particularly, I think my favorite letter is Douglas's letter. Um, but I think that's probably because I think all the other letters are from white people, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so, you know, and I mean, it's not weird to me that that she would include a letter from Douglas because he, you know, as he says in his letter, which is amazing. Um, and, and, you know, everyone should read just that letter, um, what he says about Harriet. But um, as he says, what he, the things that he was doing were in the public eye and were very prominent and, and um, famous. And that's why he was getting, you know, and so he was getting a lot of attention and he says, while he was doing that, you, you Harriet were working in the shadows at night, unknown, unseen, you know, and he um, makes a point to highlight that she was not getting any attention or credit at the time for what she was doing in the way that he sometimes was from, uh, from, from white people and from people who were well-known. Uh, it was, that, that one's probably my favorite letter. Does that letter feel religious to y'all the way it does to me? Like he, cause he doesn't directly quote the Bible or anything, but all of the comparison, the central comparison that he makes that you just cited, Katie, the, um, I'm getting, sort of recognition, public recognition from people, and you're doing all of this under cover of night, felt very, um, what is bound on earth will be bound in heaven, what is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven, kind of, um, you know, uh, your rewards that you get on earth pass away, but eternal rewards are eternal. All of that felt tied to the letter to me. Am I reading too much into that, or did y'all feel that too? I, I can see what you're saying, particularly with that that feeling of duality. Like he says, you know, you have wrought in the dark what I have wrought in the light. Um, I think the language is very, has sounds very, very kind of biblical. I don't know that I was feeling that as strongly, but I need to go back and read it because I hadn't thought about that. You know, that's not a frame that I was necessarily looking through when I was reading that letter. But I think that, I don't think that that's a misreading at all. What do you think, Adelia? I was just going back and rereading it. It definitely, like, you can feel the language of things like... Um, John Brown of sacred memory and, you know, perils and hardships. And you, you can definitely, I can definitely see that as, you know, being, uh, if not directly, like overtly trying to sound that way, it definitely is influenced for sure. Um, the one other letter too, one of the other letters that I really appreciate near the end is, I think it's, it's, or one of the, one of the letters, I think there's more than one from Thomas Garrett, from the Quaker Thomas Garrett. Um, he's the one who says that he never met any person of any color other than here, like, who who was more connected to God than Harriet? That's what he said, um, and who who was who who had more confidence that God was speaking directly to her, and guiding her as she was taking action, and um, and that was that was one of my other favorite letters because he specifically speaks to her her spirituality, her relationship with God as part of the work that she was doing, which maybe is unsurprising because he was doing his abolitionist work because of his belief. That's what I was just thinking. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, he's an interesting guy too. If you ever get time, uh, to research Thomas Garrett, I, uh, I did a little bit when I was reading, uh, months ago and he's an interesting, was an interesting person. Um, well, let me move on. I want to talk about her kind of underground railroad work, which this is probably the best known period of her life. Um, listeners, so if anything I say, you already know, uh, you know, forgive me. Um, but I just wanted to give a quick, um, quick little overview and Bradford's text she puts a lot of focus on one specific story the story of Harriet liberating among others a guy named Joe um and it is a very uh dramatic tale with lots of high emotion um and 
I don't I don't want to say too much about that because I want to be able to give some more a, a broader overview. But um, that kind of forms the centerpiece, I guess, of this particular section, um, because the whole story is I mean, the whole narrative is episodic, right, because it's giving different scenes from her life. But it's interesting to me that Bradford chose to foreground a particular story about a particular person who wasn't Harriet um, and focus on him. Um, even though she's there, she's in the scene and it's a it's a big thing. I mean, her reaction to um, hit particularly his experience of of reaching Canada is interesting. But um, so she um, she had had escaped two different times um, from her own master and um, then having attained freedom, um, wanted to go back and help others and she, um, she had a lot of different kind of strategies. And that, that, that's one of the things when I first started reading about this, that I don't know, when I was a kid, we were talking about Harriet Tubman and there was lots of talk about bravery and, you know, um, the ways that they would, um, you know, or like the different types of people she would help to freedom, the places they were trying to get to, but we didn't get told many stories about how smart she was and how she did it. Um, there was so much strategy involved that, that I don't know the feeling I got when I was a kid is that they just like ran off and hoped for the best or something. And it didn't help that I was learning about all of this in the South where I also went to work at summer camp for a while. And they would, we would literally, there would, there was a game that would be played at camp called underground railroad guys. I'm not making this up. Like, Oh wow. Ridiculous. Like some kind of, it wasn't like a capture the flag type game, but it was like a game where you were running and hiding and you were hoping not to get caught guys. And this game would be played for fun, but I can't, I can't get on that right now or I'm going to get angry. Um, so it's no wonder that when I learned about Harriet Tubman, I was not taught that she was really, really good um, and a strategic thinker, uh, being a strategic thinker to do this in a way that um, was the most uh, effective possible. So one of the reasons they had to be so smart is because the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which really, really complicated um, getting anyone to safety. Because before that, people could, if they could manage to get to a free state um, the way that Harriet did then they would be pretty safe. If you could get to, uh, you know, someplace like Pennsylvania or sometimes even, um, you know, not quite that far up, you could usually be okay. But when they passed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, it made everything more complicated because, um, as listeners, you probably know, um, when they passed this act, it made it various things. It made it illegal to help a slave escape and it, and it forced officials in free states to return escaped slaves to their owners. It also gave reward money for people who turned in escaped slaves and paid out money to judges who ruled in favor of owners. Um, and so it um, and, and there was pushback at the time. Um, multiple states passed personal liberty laws to try and get around it. Wisconsin even declared it unconstitutional in 1854. Um, but nevertheless, it basically made it um, the case that they, they pretty much had to get to Canada. Um, you, you could no longer get to just a, a more northern free state and be safe. Um, and so it made things more difficult. Interestingly, after that passed, the underground world also became more efficient because it had to be because um, they were having to go all the way to Canada. Um, so she made her first mission in December 1850. So same year that, that the slave, Fugitive Slave Act was passed. Over 11 years, she did about it's hard to see different numbers. I saw once 13 expeditions. She remembered maybe said maybe 19, but she wasn't totally sure. Um, probably the, the Bradford says in her text about 70 different slaves that she personally freed took along the, the railroad herself, um, including her brothers, their wives and some of their children and her elderly parents. Um, not her husband. When she came back, he wouldn't go with her. Um, 
her first husband wouldn't go with her though he had been a free he had been free always he was not enslaved himself i i think Uh, it's super interesting that bradford doesn't really talk that much about john because to me that's such an interesting part of her story the fact that she goes back to get him and not just he won't go with her but bro has gotten himself an entire other family and remarried in her absence like Mm -hmm. he just completely starts this new life which i mean she was gone for a really long time and he didn't know if she was coming back or alive or whatever but like that's got to be a huge emotional blow for both of them and bradford kind of skirts around it absolutely It, it, it is really interesting and i don't know if that was because she didn't want to Kind of, I don't know if she worried about it seeming like that she would yeah, stayed with. It seems or, kind of could be morally ambiguous, and she's trying to paint this picture so she can get money. I get it. Yeah, yeah, but but you're right though. I mean, it's a when I told when I when I talked about it with my ladies at church that that was it was interesting that part of the story they were very indignant about <laughs> that that he um, that he well and not and that he he tried to get her to stay. Which, you know, if your freed husband tries to get you a slave to stay, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, you don't, you're not going to do that. I, it, yeah, it, it was, um, that, that's a, a part of the story that you don't get at all. You're right in this particular text. Um, as she was doing all this, she started to earn her nickname Moses that you guys referenced earlier. Um, and one thing that is not talked about a lot, but it's true, is that she took a lot of people on her own, but she also provided instructions to another 50 or 60 people who made their own journeys north. Um, she would tell them which routes to take. Um, I read, I didn't realize this until later when I was reading, we don't, I, we don't really know the exact routes because they wouldn't tell anybody. Right. It's not like they were writing this down or, you know, they didn't want anybody to know which routes they were taking. Um, and she is famously never lost a single person um, on the journey. Um, and now part of that is because she would not let people go back, um, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Um, okay, that's one of my favorite parts. Yes, please talk about that. <laughs> um, well, and so I sorry, I mentioned strategy earlier. So um, she had all kinds of strategies to make sure that this this that this was successful. First, they worked in winter when there would be fewer people out. The nights were longer, so they had more time to go. Which, on the face of it, you might think, oh, that's a terrible idea. Why would you want to travel in the middle of the night when it's freezing cold? Well, because nobody else wants to get out and travel in the freezing cold. Um, and so they're you know they're not going to be as many people around. Um, she would leave on Saturday nights because they. She knew that no ad- advertisements about the um, escaped slaves could be printed on Sunday. I love that. So, I love that she's like using their piety mm-hmm. against them. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that the soonest anybody would be, they would be able to publicize this would be Monday. Um, she had various disguises um, that they would use from time to time. Um, but one of the things that she would do is she also carried a pistol and part of it partially it was for protection and to discourage pursuit by people hunting them, but also it was to keep slaves from going back. And in this, in the, uh, in the text, um, has her telling, um, somebody, uh, let's see, uh, okay, let me find it. Sometimes members of the, her party would become exhausted, footsore, and bleeding, and declared they could not go on. They must stay where they drop down and die. Others would think a voluntary return to slavery better than being overtaken and carried back and would insist upon returning. Then there was no remedy but force. Um, and Bradford says at that point she would point her uh, revolver at their head and say, go on or die. Um, and so she compelled them to drag their weary limbs on their northward journey. <laughs> 
Um, so she would, I mean, she was not going to let anybody go back because a person who goes back can be made to tell where they were, which way they took, you know, it would, it would have been, I mean, and when, when, you know, it sounds on the, just on the very surface, it sounds heartless. Like, but then about a second later, you realize what that makes perfect sense because, you know, if somebody goes back, even if they don't have any intention of telling where the routes were, who they were with, you know, we know that that person's probably going to be tortured for information. And so it was a way of not just getting them to their eventual des destination and making sure that those slaves experienced freedom, but of protecting the entire operation. Um, cause it would all come crashing down if you'd had a person or two go back and start telling, you know, who's in charge, who are the people, where do people go, all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I, me too, Leah, that's one of my favorite parts is when, which, you know, I'm sure it was not enjoyable, um, at, in, in the moment for the slaves that it happened to the ones that wanted to go back and she w forced them to keep going. But it, it's amazing to know that the result was so good that, they all made it. <laughs> no one ever was lost. Um, anyway, those are the, just some of the some of the kind of high points, I suppose. Um, at one point, she had a twelve thousand dollar reward on her head. Um, that's the other thing that I think is kind of amazing. Um, and there was one other story that I like. Though this is actually not a story. Well, I think this is to do with. I think that Harriet later took them on. But there was also there's also a fun story in Bradford's text about Catherine, who was the kind of girlfriend of one of her brothers. That when they were escaping, she escaped by. Um, going out into the garden where someone had left some clothes and putting on a suit of clothes that made her look like a young man and then just like walking off the property um, because she didn't look like herself. I, that's one of my favorite stories too. So after the Underground Railroad, um, during the Civil War, Harriet kind of entered a new chapter of, uh, of her life um, and uh, a chapter that saw her uh, giving her efforts to uh, the northern side of the Civil War. So Victoria's going to talk about that for a little bit and tell us about her Civil War service, which not as many people know about. Uh, so this is my favorite part of Harriet's story because she serves her country when it's not, A, it's not like legal for her to because she doubly does not count as a person. And, uh, B, she serves this country who has enslaved her. Like, the fact that she willingly takes this on to help people, um, people that she, in so many ways, does not owe anything, is just incredible to me. Um, and also, she's super tough and cool and works really hard and, uh, is, is both a nurse and kind of a spy too because she she uses these um, strategic tactics that she learns working on the underground railroad to um to pass messages in between people and do all kind of cool stuff um but bradford mostly talks about her service as a nurse uh, she works in a field hospital and uh, this section is, is written in dialect, but I'm not going to read it that way because that does not feel appropriate to me. Uh, I'd go to the hospital, I would early every morning. I'd get a big chunk of ice and put it in a basin and fill it with water. Then I'd take a sponge and begin. The first man I'd come to, I'd thrash away the flies and they'd rise like bees around a hive. Then I'd begin to bathe their wounds, and by the time I bathed off three or four, the fire and heat would have melted the ice and made the water warm, and it would be as red as clear blood. She's um, nursing these horribly wounded 
men. Then I'd go get more ice, and by the time I got to the next one, the flies would be around the first ones, black and thick as ever. This way she worked day after day till late at night, then went home to her little cabin and made 50 pies, a great quantity of gingerbread, and two casks of root beer. Uh, these she would hire some contraband to sell for her through the camps, and thus she would provide her support for another day. Uh, and she doesn't receive any pay for this until Secretary of State William Henry Seward um, writes a letter, one in that string of letters that we have talked about. So not only is she acting as a nurse, she's supporting herself by working another job at night, uh, doing kind of more traditional feminine labor. She just is incredible. Like, I do not have it in me to do all that work, much less for someone who not only doesn't say thank you, but treats me like I'm not a human worth the things that humans are worth. It just, that's incredible to me. That power has got to come from God, right? Because that's just beyond... That is beyond mm-hmm. human capability to me. Mm-hmm. I yeah, absolutely. I um, the you know because the contra I mean the the whole contraband thing is it's so rage making. When because listeners, if you if you in Bradford's text, they talk about the contraband are slaves who kind of poured into the Union Army camp, um, and you know seeking freedom, and um, at least in the beginning were uh, declared contraband because um, they were technically property and immediately put to work. Which, you know, I just, <laughs> you know, you're right, Victoria, there's, it's not as if having, it's not as if being on this particular side is necessarily making her life any better, or the lives of these other, uh, of these other people in the camp. But yeah, that she would, that she would nurse without regard to her own um, kind of energy or, um, I, I, what I love about that too is um, Bradford talks about her, you know, nursing you know, she's nursing hundreds of these guys through dysentery, smallpox. They mention like multiple diseases and she never catches any of it. Um, she which, you says know, like, worth- God's going to protect her and that she's going to go when it's her time to go. She's like, it yeah. doesn't matter whatever I'm exposed to. Not that she, you know, said exposed because they didn't know how that worked yet. But yeah, just incredible, incredible fortitude. Um but before we stop talking about her Civil War service, I want to mention one more thing. Uh, I talked about William Henry Seward, but I do want to read one more letter, uh, which is very short. And it's my favorite letter in the whole piece. Uh, in the midst of this list of like uh, rich white people and their wives establishing her authority, we also have a letter from uh, Henry K. Durant, acting assistant surgeon uh, in Buford, South Carolina in 1862. Will Captain Warfield please let Moses have a little bourbon whiskey for medicinal purposes? That's it. That's the whole letter. <laughs> Just p- <laughs> please give this woman some whiskey, but for medicine only, <laughs> which yep. is hilarious. I mean, I love- probably is using it for uh, medicine, but for goodness sakes, if anybody deserves a drink, <laughs> it's Harriet Tubman in the okay, Civil right? War. 100% yes. That's another, like, thing about, Katie, you were talking about, like, that we never talk about how intelligent she is. Because they make a point, uh, I think it's in some of the letters, that 
she had remedies for those illnesses, for dysentery, for for all these sicknesses and everything that worked better than anything anybody else had, right? Like she, you know, you talk, she, she couldn't read because she was prohibited from education, but, but she had this knowledge that, that these other people, professional doctors did not have to be able to help these people who were sick. And I think it's one more testament to the fact that, you know, she is more than we make her out to be. And even, I mean, than they made her out to be for sure at the time. But but even now, if we do her a disservice, if we don't recognize the full breadth of her skill and knowledge and ability to, you know, contribute to her fellow man and woman, you know, that are around her. I think that's, that was really interesting to me. Those slave remedies, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, uh, sort of naturopathic medicine is rich white people stuff now because mm-hmm. because it's um, an, another way that white people have kind of co-opted this very old, in many cases, black tradition because slaves didn't have access to quote unquote traditional medicine and but they what they did have access to was the land and, and the knowledge of the things that grew around them um, which is also, of course, quite often historically um, female knowledge. So it's it's black women who are kind of controlling this knowledge base and understanding how all of these um, natural remedies work and, and how to mix things together. Uh, so I, I think it makes total sense that that's not something that we talk about as much because it is not only racialized knowledge, but but gendered knowledge kind of on top of that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and I, and the when she talks about you know not being afraid of disease, and um, I think that that's having reread this again to prepare for the podcast. That's my abiding kind of impression of her that I take away at least from Bradford's text is her just complete fearlessness and security in you know in god's plan for her she felt like you know the things that she was doing she felt like god wanted her to do it was god's vision for her and she so she had no fear that you know any of these things would harm her and you can see that and i mean even when she was young before any of this happens you know she she gets injured because she throws herself between um you know harm and another person so even from when she was small she there's there's that kind of um bravery in her um it's not just something that's been, um, she hasn't developed this toughness just because of the things that she has experienced, though, you know, there, some of them have been terrible, um, but it is something that seems to have been innate in her all her life. Okay, well, um, finally, I just, I wanted to say a few words about her suffragist activism, which is not in this book, like I said, but I, I wanted to kind of just end our little rundown of her biography with um, just a little bit. Um, so she, because that's another that's another thing you don't always hear about. A lot of times when, again, in school, we get taught about first wave feminism and we get taught about early um, efforts for votes for women. You hear about women like, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And sometimes you hear about Harriet Tubman, but not always. Um, so this was obviously in her later life. This was something that she was involved in. And, and there were other causes too. It was not just the ab- abolitionist cause and, and suffragist cause. Um, she was a, a person who was, um, involved in activism her entire life. And that's another reason I wanted to talk to her. I wanted to talk about her at church too, is because a lot of times I think, um, we at church, we talk about Bible women, or maybe we talk about, I don't know, you know, like mothers of famous men, uh, like the, you know, Susanna Wesley, I don't know, but I wanted to talk about somebody who was not just, um, 
not just writing or not just a thinker or not just involved in theology, but someone who shows that one of the things that we can and should do as Christian women is to be doing things that are active, be involved in activism, or in the mm-hmm. case of Harriet, she was taking very direct illegal action, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which, yes. you know, and, and that's not something, and, 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 you know, especially in Harriet's case, um, you know, I'm, I'm not teaching my ladies at church about that with some kind of apology, like what she did was illegal, but, you know, but that, um, you know, in that case, the law was wrong. Yes. And so, yeah, so, yeah, so it's, I think it's really important to talk about somebody like Harriet um, when we talk about what women in, in, in the history of the, of the Christianity should we emulate. It shouldn't just be people like Mary and Susanna Wesley. It should also be people like Harry Tubman. And um, she, and I'm sure you're going to say this, but I think she's interesting because she, especially as a suffragist, we have record of her confronting white suffragists and saying like, your situation is not my situation. And she sort of mm-hmm. spe- speaks truth to power in that way, um, similarly to what Sojourner Truth does as, as an early, um, someone who's in the, the intersection of the abolition and, and suffragist movements too. Victoria, do you want to say anything more about that? Because I think you actually probably have deeper knowledge than I do about, about the ways that she kind of set herself up as different from those other, from those early white um, suffra- suffragists. Is there anything else that you would want to say about that in particular? Because I think you know more than I do. Um, just that she she is um, connected to those women in the movement by Frederick Douglass, who um, is, he kind of lends a certain kind of legitimacy to, in a weird way, um, to the suffrage movement as a man, even though he's a black man, he uh, is the only male speaker at uh, the Seneca Falls Convention, which I'm sure all of our listeners know, because I think we've done at least two episodes where we talked about Seneca Falls. Um, I I don't really have that much more to say other than she does call that out and say, um, particularly, she calls out I think, is it, I think it's Anthony, um, who is, is talking about, um, suffrage as being colored by Christianity and Tubman. I'm, I don't remember what, um, like what public gathering this is at, but Tubman says essentially that's your Christianity and not my Christianity. She, she makes a point that white Christianity is, it has been used to justify slavery and like, let's not forget, you know, it's, it's way too soon to forget that that happened and that white people did it. And so she um, really kind of sticks her neck out there and, and calls that out. Thanks. No, that, that gives a, it gives a, a lot more, um, depth. Um, you know, I had, um, kind of just had some more basic, um, kind of the first things that she was involved in. So that's really helpful because I think it gives a lot more texture. Um, so she, uh, she was, um, did a lot of traveling and, uh, to speak out in favor of women's voting rights. And she did speaking in various cities and, um, would kind of, uh, not just kind of speak out in, uh, in favor of what um, she wanted to happen with women getting the vote, but also talk through her past. So she would describe her actions during and after the Civil War and um, talk about the sacrifices of women throughout modern history as evidence that women are, are equal to men. Um, and 
kind of probably Victoria speaking to also her her feelings about the disparate experiences of white women seeking the vote and black women seeking the vote. Um, in 1896, which I'm trying to think how old she would have been then, um, she would have been she would have been about 15 years from her death. Um, when the National Federation of Afro-American Women was founded, she was the very first keynote speaker at the very first meeting. Um, so she was definitely there in the beginning of um, the specific efforts of black women to seek um, to seek the vote and to seek um, the equal, kind of equal political rights with men. Um, and then, you know, even later than that, um, there were kind of it's and this is um it's it's very frustrating i know there was a series of receptions in boston um in the very late 1890s honoring her and her kind of her lifetime of um service but because she always was giving everything she had to other people she had to kind of sell something to buy a train ticket to go to these receptions where she was going to be honored um which is so harriet tubman and that's something we haven't said a lot about either but um her generosity but throughout bradford's text over and over and over and over it's the point is made that anytime she got anything she used it for somebody else um you know when she was first escaped by herself she worked for a while at various jobs earned enough money to go back and help somebody else escape and then that's what she would do and so in between these trips, she was earning just enough money to make the trip again and then go help more people. Um, when she, you know, when she got older, she made sure that her parents had a place to live. Um, and when she was in her very old age, she was um, she was speaking on behalf of um, care for the elderly and established um, the uh, let me find it. I got to find it. Uh, Harriet Tubman Home for the Aged in 1908, where uh, where she moved in herself a few years after that. So she was always seeking to help others, um, never herself. And that's another point you see made over and over in the letters in Bradford's text. And it's not just words. I mean, you can see in the, in the events of her life that she was always directed outward at helping others and either monetarily or to gain their freedom or like that, um, which makes it to me even more frustrating that, that it had to be such a long struggle to get her any kind of pension despite her civil war service. So, um, anything else? Um, and, and I had it just, let's just do, I had a few other questions and, and then we'll, um, go now that we've kind of got to the end of the, the biographical review listeners, um, just a couple questions here at the end. And we've talked about this some, but did you guys have anything else to say about how, how Bradford's specific purpose for the text? How, how, what, are there any other ways that we haven't already said that it's coming through and how she wrote the text? Um, I know we've mentioned the the kind of epistolary interludes throughout the text, but uh, that to me is where this feels, uh, other than the like strange, even for a black person stuff, um, that's where the text feels the most 19th century to me because you can feel her building Harriet's case for accuracy through the rhetorical authority of rich white landowners and their rich white wives essentially like these are socially acceptable people whose stories you can believe and therefore here's how you know what i'm saying is true 
Yeah, you know, I was thinking that it remind, and this may just be because the last couple of weeks have been all about the the conventions, but it reminds me of like a a convention night, like all of these people coming to tell how great this person is, a very personal story about Joe and his experience, and and a lot of detail put into that, and then here's some more people to talk about another area of her life. You know what I mean? Like it it just kind of has this feel of this um, rally around this person to like. Um, sell the story and to to sell the idea of you know this is somebody that you should you know support send money to or whatever you know it's it's a very kind of um, almost evangelical approach to getting her story out there and and really you know supporting her narrative so that they can like we said you know earn the money sell the books and 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 all of that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And the the letters to Victoria um, kind of to me highlight also it doubles down on the how mediated this text is though, because she wasn't able to read or write. You know, she's telling her stories to other people, and in this case to Bradford. Um, and Bradford says at the beginning too, some of these stories Harriet had told to her, other ones she'd heard from other people that who heard them from Harriet. But so we're getting Harriet's story through Bradford and through all of these other people who are writing letters. And so that, that in particular, that mediation um, makes it a little bit more difficult because there's that remove, you know, of um, from, and we, and we haven't, Victoria mentioned this. We, I should have said this at the beginning. There are large sections of this book that are kind of written in dialect and um, which makes it harder to read. Um, and like literally more difficult, but also it's it, it it's it's uncomfortable to read at times. Yeah, it's, it's very a little cringy. a yes. little cringy it from is, a from a twenty first century yeah. place. Uh, and that's such a hard thing because on the one hand, you know, she seems to be trying to make some attempt to approximate, you know, uh, the way that the the speech that Harriet's speech might have is is sounding to her. But on the other hand, that comes and goes though. I don't know if you guys noticed that. Like there are oh, times yeah, when I she's noticed. writing Harriet's dialect is way more thick than other times, and it's it's almost like she was picking and choosing her moments. It, I, it's very strange. And and we know we know that that was a very common mechanism, particularly in these money raising um, slave narratives of the time put out by white people, because we have um, historical evidence now that. Um, lots of famous dialect narratives, but the most famous of them being Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman speech were actually fabricated by white writers to sound differently than they actually historically did. So, you know, this is this is a tradition. Um, I, I'm not sure Bradford was doing it on purpose, but also she could have been. Like, we, we have lots of historical evidence that that did happen, particularly when... Um, white people were trying to frame black narratives around efforts to earn money. That makes sense. And I would imagine too, um, you know, with a person, if, if you want to make somebody seem um, in some way, if you want to feel, if you want to make a, a reader feel sorry for someone and then want them to send money to help support Harriet, she was such a um, confident, powerful person um, in her, it just in in her uh, her bravery and the things that she did, you know, um, she's not a person. Even though you know, terribly, I mean, awful things happened to her, especially in her early life. But it could be, it could have been another way that Bradford's trying to elicit sympathy because Harriet's story is not the story of here's a poor person beaten down, and you know, 
does that make sense what I'm trying to say? I'm not expressing myself very well. Yeah, she she seems so superhuman despite all efforts to make her literally less than human. I know I've said that 10 times, but it's worth saying 10 more times. It's important. It makes sense to want to kind of bring her down to earth a little bit in certain ways. Yeah. I think that's maybe what I think that's maybe another reason that Bradford does that a little bit and, and maybe a, and, and I mean, obviously, to me, a reason that she keeps emphasizing her lack of monetary funds, you know, that even though she's doing all these amazing things, you know, she still, you know, needs to bake pies every night to get by for the next day because nobody will give her anything, even though she's nursing all these soldiers. I, it, it's just it's very frustrating. Were you going to say something, Leah? No, I was just agreeing with what you guys were saying. Yeah, I think that that it is definitely to to build sympathy and also just um, because that was the style of the time and that was kind of the accepted, you know, technique that was used. Um, it fits into my uh, my earlier beef with the uh, the condescension and the the paternalistic. Like we need to take care of her. You know, it, it it's it's I understand why and it's very uh, you know common for the time um it doesn't make it less cringy though (laughs) um so yeah that was a little bit difficult to read because and because like when she's talking about other people she doesn't write their accents if they're from the south or whatever you know it's very specifically about you know this this black dialect that has been kind of superimposed in literature on you know this people group in order to infantilize them or whatever it's just it's it's very telling is what it is it's it is what it is for the time period but it is it is very telling of kind of the the larger culture that's going on behind the scenes and between the lines. Even on the part of people who are sympathetic to the abolitionist cause and are from the right side of the country, which is also worth saying, you know, I mean, I think a lot of times um, there's this kind of, there's a a binary thinking. I don't know. Again, when, when we were kids, we almost got this idea in school that there was the South and there were these abolitionists that, you know, that everybody in the North would be on the side of somebody like Garrett or, you know, that they were, you know, that, but I mean, you know, the reality is that's not true. There were people in the North who were totally turning in, um, you yes. know, uh, people for, for the, to get their fugitive slave act reward. Um, I, one of the things that is interesting, interesting to me about Bradford is that when she decided to write the story, she didn't at that point, didn't personally know Harriet, but she knew people who did. It was kind of, I think that her sisters or so, there was somebody in her life who had met Harriet and heard some of these stories firsthand. Um, and Bradford heard about it second or third hand and was so interested that she wanted to kind of find out more. And that is interesting to me um, that she didn't already have the personal connection and, you know, wanted to try to, um, to try to help, which I think, you know, makes up, makes, makes me feel a little bit better about her um, based on how she. Okay, so now we're going to do Passing On, and we're all going to recommend something, uh, listeners, that we think might be of interest to you this week. Victoria, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, I'm going to recommend an episode of a television show. I believe I've talked about this show um, on the podcast before, and if you haven't, you should watch the entire show. Um, It's a show that was on WGN a couple of years ago called Underground. Uh, and the episode I'm going to recommend is Season 2, Episode 6, uh, titled Minty, uh, which is um, Harriet's name, uh, Araminta Ross. She was commonly called Minty. And this is such a fascinating episode of television because 
Um, the writer-creator referred to it on set as Harriet Tubman's TED Talk because it is um, one speech. The entire episode is her talking, and much of the episode is a single shot to, uh, of her on stage, and it's her giving one of these um, money-raising speeches near the end of her life. And uh, I didn't realize this until we were reading for this episode, but much of um, the text for that episode comes um, from Bradford, some of it in ink, straight quotation. So I didn't realize how much of this uh, book I was already familiar with. But it's it's a fantastic piece of television. Uh, Harriet is played by Aisha Hines, who's a, a wonderful uh, actor, and I would recommend it. Uh, the episode of Underground, entitled Minty. Thanks so much. That sounds amazing. Um, Leah, what about you? I was going to uh, recommend uh, on Amy Poehler's Smart Girls, they have, it's a it's a website and a social media account, and you can follow it on Facebook and Instagram, um, but they have uh, worked with a group called Shift7 to compile a resource of, they're calling it 20 for 2020, uh, women of color who um, worked throughout American history um, for change, and so there are uh, abolitionists, voting rights activists, civil rights leaders, um, many of them are black, some of them are Latina, um, uh, native peoples, and, and it's a really great resource for um, short biographies, pictures, information, and then resources for more, because um, I know we talked about most people are, are somewhat familiar with Harriet Tubman, um, but you might not be as familiar, familiar with Francis Ellen Watkins Harper or Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin. And so it's just um, a great resource for adults and also for, um, for children, for, for young people to uh, research more women, specifically women of color who have impacted our American history. Awesome. Thanks. I already, I, while you were talking, I was opening that tab because I'm excited to read that. Um, my recommendation for today is uh, a children's book by Carol Boston Weatherford. It's called Moses, When Harriet Tubman Led Her People to Freedom. Uh, one of my church ladies introduced me to this book after we talked about Harriet Tubman in class. And it is lengthy for a picture book, which I, I really love and has beautiful illustrations. But my favorite thing about it is that it very, very heavily emphasizes her spirituality, her connection with God, her belief that God was guiding her at every step. Um, and so it is a, it's a depiction of, to me, her full self, her full personality. It's not a, it's not a secularized version of her story. Cause I don't think that's possible. If you tried to create that, it wouldn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's my recommendation recommendation for tonight. Carol Boston Weatherford's Moses book for kids. Um, but also for grownups, because I obviously uh, loved it, too, <laughs> when I read it. Um, well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us uh, for our talk about Harriet Tubman today. Um, as always, we really, really appreciate you listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast, and we would love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to get in touch with us, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And you can check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Eileen Dana Grubbs and Victoria Reynolds Farmer, I am Katie Grubbs. 
Tune in in two weeks. We'll be discussing uh, mental health in the era of COVID. Until then, in Essentials Unity and Non-Essentials Liberty and in all things love.